Good morning and welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and today I have a very special guest, my very good friend and, um, you know, journalist, author, political commentator, um, soccer tragic, Ahmed Yusuf. Good morning, Ahmed. Morning, Jaime. Thanks for, for having me. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Uh, yeah. Quite the bio. <laughs> I um uh, 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 need to apologize to all the listeners because we're running a bit late this morning. I was just stuck in traffic, so um. But uh, anyway, we have a, a a nice show lined up for them, and we're gonna start with a with a good little track, and then um, we'll just have a bit of a a chat about everything that has happened since we last saw each other. Ahmed, what yeah, do you think? That sounds good. All right, so let's listen to some music first. Does anybody know what happened to yesterday? Ahmed, what did you think of that song? I liked it. Yeah, it's, it's nice and it's sort of like chill, sort of morning uh, listen. That's right. So that that song is called "The Watch" uh, by an artist called Khadija Bonnet, and I don't know much about her, but a friend of me, a friend of mine, sent it to me, and I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it was nice. All right, so um, we have a few um, few topics that we want to discuss this morning, and the first one. It's something that is um, quite concerning that you um, you have been quite interested in for the last few weeks. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Give us, yeah, g- give so the listeners, listeners a bit of a, a brief. So uh, there, um, there's this man called Brett and He used to be the head of professional standards at the Victoria Police, and last year he was uh, caught through a investigative uh, report by the Age to have been posting racist comments on on YouTube and other social networking websites under some pseudonym called Vernon um, something. And uh, one of the comments he left under a Somali Pirates video um, is quoted to saying, I'm afraid this is what happens when the lash is abolished. The Jigobu runs riot and out of control. The boo needs the lash. The boo wants the lash. Deep Deep down, the boo knows the lash provides governance and stability. And the thing that is also particularly stu- like so maybe um, Ahmed, just for the sake of our listeners who might not be uh, um, familiar with some of that language, I mean, can you de- decode that well, for our listeners? Well, basically, that's some very sort of like racialized language. Jigibu is a very sort of um, it's, it's a it's a racialized slur, um, and the language about the lash has very clear sort of like bond like connections to slavery and bondage That's and right. ideas of of yeah of, of, of also animalizing animalizing yeah, yeah completely and the worrying thing about this so this this person was before he became the head of professional standards at the victoria police he used to be the superintendent in Flemington during the period where the racial profiling of young African youth was happening. Yeah, and, and Ahmed, it would be bad enough if he was just a regular um, constable, yeah. but to think that this guy at some point was the head of professional standards for Victoria Police, that's yeah, pretty but, crazy. But also it's like worrying because, so Victoria Police ended up settling the case with a bunch of young African um, uh, people regarding the racial profiling in 2013. 
and admitted to the fact that they were racially profiling young Africans. This is the person who set up Operation Motlow to particularly surveil and racially profile young African men. Um, and then from that point onwards to get a job as the head of professional standards at the organization. And then now with this investigation, none of the findings are going to be put out in the public. So we don't know what they found and what they're going to do about the information. And what annoyed me about this, um, about the reporting of this story is that a lot of news, a lot of news stories neglected to add this particular comment in the in their um, in the news stories, they put they posted other comments that he had posted online, which were a lot more tamer than this particular this particular quote, which tells me a lot about the way in which people are reporting this story. Well, so the media is sort of protecting. Well, I don't know if they're protecting him. Well, I mean, not 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 protecting in a way, but but basically. But they're being negligent. Yeah, completely negligent because you have to look at this man's history. So if he's he he was there during the racial profiling in Flemington, and then got um, hired as the head of professional standards, and then he uses this particular very racialized language to do with black people, and then you're not commenting on that language to so, do with his history. But so basically, this guy had his day day job at Victoria Police, and then he went home at night, and he became a troll on Twitter or something like that. Is that is that what? Pretty much, and or Facebook or whatever yeah, it was. These comments were on YouTube, but like um, I, I did a story about this last year when this broke, and I spoke to um, someone from Kensington Flemington Legal Center, and they were telling me that people knew about him. People knew that he was this sort of type of character. Um, years back, he had made this comment about calling Muslim women towel heads, oh, wow. and so th this this language has pervaded his sort of like like his space for a while and it's only until it became very very public that some action was taken and then we don't even know what happens because we don't have any of the information about this investigation and so what happens now and what kind of justice is going to be made wow i mean i guess that this also is linked to um some other uh, i guess pushes or pressure to set up an independent independent investigations uh, body for Victoria Police. Uh, Completely. Yeah. Because you can't have people who work in the organization investigating those those same people. You need to have a level of autonomy for that investigation. Otherwise, you know, he was very powerful in that organization. He must have had friends. Wow. So how does that impact? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Uh, it is now um, almost 20 minutes past nine. And our guest this morning is Ahmed Yusuf. Um, we're just having a conversation about a number of current affair topics that, that have taken our interest for the last few uh, weeks. And we're going to play another song for you. This, this is a bit of a change of style. Um, this is a chap called Jordan Raquet. Uh, let's see if people like this one. All right, so that was quite different. Hey? Yeah. Um, his name is Jordan Raquet, and that track was called Midnight Mis Mischief. Ah, mm. I, you know, I, 
lots of friends everyone loves a little bit of mischief yeah exactly and you know lots of friends send me music and you know i just decide to show it to our listeners as well you know our listeners are our friends so um we're all expanding our horizons here all right so um ahmed i know that you um sometimes follow a little bit uh q a yes um through gritted teeth (laughs) <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, my partner Elena, she can't, she cannot not physically watch it. She it's too much for her. She just well, like the thing is, like I think a lot of the conversations when we talk about Q and A, is that th- there's a lot of responsibility. And I and I remember last week I saw that there was the job for the executive producer of Q and A going out, and I thought about it. I'm just like, imagine the whoever gets this job. They are shaping the public discourse in Australia in a very huge way. And the way in which we see um, conversations, national conversations, happen. And last week was a very interesting one. Um, uh, Be- before we, st- we talk about last week, let's talk a, l- a little bit about it in, in general. Because I think it's a really, really interesting topic, what, what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so Q&A, I think for a, for a show on ABC on a Monday night, it's got a pretty huge following it does um and not only people watching but also people uh on twitter um and it's interesting because uh they they get a lot of criticism from the right because they think that they only invite left-wing nuts or something like that (laughs) whereas i think you know perhaps you know from our perspective things are a bit different well the thing is like when you watch Q&A, it is deliberately created to create controversy, right? It's deliberately made to to be in that particular kind of way. You get you get figures on to be sort of caricatures, you know, and the the show in its in, the show is produced primarily by a white produ- uh, producing team who pick whoever they want. So the whole selection of who who gets to be on that show is defined through the host and that producing team, right? It's filtered through them. There is no sort of like... And then when we talk about sort of like when a lot of conversation about Q&A comes on, how many diverse bodies are in this in this selection of panel, right? But we don't actually talk about who has curated that selection of panel. <laughs> that's right. How many? What? How much diversity there is in the in the group that, that exactly. decides that? Yeah. But also they decide the conversation. Mm. They dictate the host has a has a type of um idea where he wants the conversation to go he decides which questions go to which panelist and it and you are you're living through a curated selection of conversation and at the same time it's probably fair to um recognize that they've had some incredible people there and they've had some very ba- <laughs> so it's always like it's it's, it's always like interesting because i um i uh describe q a to a friend as watching smart people deal with very stupid people. <laughs> What's the name of this um, African-American philosopher who was there quite a while ago? You know, he's this guy with a... Oh, Kona West. Yeah, my God. He, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, um, he's, he's amazing. And then he was on a panel with... Um, can't remember someone from the Luba Party who was, <laughs> who was interesting and clearly didn't understand what Kona was trying to say. And then there was th- there was this other lady, similarly, you know, African American lady, incredible. Well, you know, you remember f- her Ooh. name? Anyway, I'm trying to remember. But that, I, I, how long ago was that? <sighs> Probably about four or five months. But similarly, um, again, incredibly smart and accomplished people. And sometimes you put them with someone, and it's almost like the discourse is happening at two different, completely, completely different two levels. Two different levels, yeah. 
Yeah. And all right, so so this past week. So who was there? Um, who was so, there last week? So the week? panel was Lionel Shriver, Duray McKesson from Black Lives Matter. Um, and who's Lionel, Lionel Shriver for our listeners? Just. Lionel Shriver is an American writer and uh, she's written a bunch of really um, big books. Um, we need to talk about Kevin and some other books. And in 2016, um, she did a speech at the Brisbane Writers Festival, the, the keynote speech, and it got a lot of attention. Um, in the speech, she was referencing and sort of like hitting back in a review of her most recent book, which I can't remember of. And that review talked about uh, issues with um, sort of black characters in her story. I think the only black character in the story was this black woman who was with her white partner and f and, their f and his family. And at one point in the, in the story, she, uh, she was held by a leash and controlled like a dog sort mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, this reviewer was talking about how there are issues in which how this story has become this way, the historical markers of bondage and etc. when it comes to African Americans. And this is particularly, this particularly doesn't work and she's not writing nuanced um, black characters. She took this to, she took this as a thing about uh, cultural, cultural appropriation. appropriation. Mm -hmm basically saying that I'm appropriating um, African-American culture by writing um, black characters, so to speak, which completely sort of missed the, the, the sort of critique of the story. And that be, that sort of like reverberated around all about this, like com uh, this discourse about writing and this continued to um, last week when she said basically... I think that literature is almost dying. Fiction is going to die. <laughs> Who's going to be able to write stories if I can't write a story of a bad black character? But so the, the, I guess the the criticism was more about the credibility around that character and how um, lack of nuance or whatever. No, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily saying you cannot write. Yeah. Um, about a black character. Yeah, and it was interesting because on the panel. The panel was um, Benjamin Law, Ruby Hamad, Dore McKesson, and I'm forgetting the last panelist here was an American academic, uh, journalism academic from Columbia. And uh, Lionel Shriver asked basically all three of the sort of people of color on the panel, can, can white people write people of color characters? Can anyone write anything? And they all pretty much answered, yes, you can write anything. <laughs> Just write it well. And I think uh, that wasn't the sort of answer that she wanted. And I find it interesting when um, her big thing right now is talking about identity politics. And the identity politic that is not being talked about in this sort of this discourse is her need to feel... Um, to feel validated to write about anything regardless of its quality and, to, <laughs> and, to, and, 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 and that screams white identity politics and screams a politic uh, mm. identity politics that sort of is um, taken aback by critique and criticism which is valid yeah. if, you're, if you're writing about anything you know uh, Ahmed when, when you talk about this uh, I, I, I mentioned it off air the, the thing that comes to mind um there's this author called Alexander McCall Smith. He wrote a series of books called The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. 
Um, now the books are, s are set in Botswana, and they feature the character um, Precious Ramotswi, who is a lady, um, Africa, uh, African lady, of course. Um, and you know, Ma Alexander McCall Smith is a white guy. Um, you know, I think I don't know how many millions of books he sold. And I don't think ever anyone has ever had a, an issue with him writing from the perspective of a of yeah. a, a a woman and from a, a an African woman, because I think, as you said before, he's done his research. The quality is there. He's anyway. do your due diligence. You can write about anything. Like I'm thinking about one of the best shows, um, some of the best shows, my favorite shows on television right now. Um, this is us. The Good Place. The Good Place particularly. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the head writer is Michael Schur. Obviously, he has, he has a diverse <laughs> writing team, but that world is his own making. And yeah. uh, for him... Actually, the, the character of, the, of, the, of that professor, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really Amazing, cheaty, eh? <laughs> yeah. He's amazing. <laughs> but, like, that's what I mean, like... There is no one saying you can't write black characters or or, or uh, people of color characters. You can write whatever you like, but it's just about how you go about it. And um, I just found that sort of discourse very interesting because it's like you're stopping us and policing what we can write. And the reality is that with anything, critique is there f to sort of tell you what you're doing wrong. Well, um, you know, uh, that, I mean, I, I think that's really fascinating. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, from my, my judgment, is the, there's quite a lot of um, mediocrity in that sort of um, right-wing um, world that, de that de always denounce um, political correctness. And, but a lot of the times, again, it's... Well, it's really sad right now because, like, did you hear about David Chappelle's new um, comedy special? No. Uh, it's really... Because, like, David Chappelle is such an was such an amazing comic who was so ahead of the time, of, ahead of the curve and was like, you know, this sort of uber-commercialized world makes me feel sick and I just want to take a step back at the peak of his powers. He comes back in a decade or so time and his comedy specials are him obsessed with um, trans people making really transphobic mm. jokes being super like uh, just uh, I don't know man it just makes me sad you know I, I mean I find this really uh, really interesting um, I, I want to confess I'm a huge fan of Robin Williams right um, now this guy joked about anything and everything right now similarly I am, you know, I find Ricky Gervais very, very funny, yeah? But at the same time... Oh, Ricky Gervais, man, is so annoying. Well, at the same time, I oh, have but to I say... I know, I know, but, like, I get that. But I have to say, yeah, yeah so his, his, um, his jokes are, are uh, about um, that um, trans person. Um, I, f I found them really terrible and offensive, and... And at the same time, you know, I mean, it, it, that's the thing, the thing about comedy as well, right? Because comedy, in some, in, in sometimes, you know, some comedians are using this to um, almost highlight some of the in, in, injustices. So it's, it's so complicated, but but I don't think I don't think I don't think Dave Chappelle no. was, and I don't think Ricky Gervais. No, was. I don't think he was. Yeah, no. and it's just like this weird thing where these are really talented people, mm. and it's really sad that. 
it's like I think it's ego when it comes it comes a lot down to ego and this idea that people are stopping you from saying something but in reality people are just saying like you know you're supposed to punch up not down well I was going to say as well I think one of the things that happens now nowadays as well is a lot of people are really reluctant to say you know what yes I screwed up I'm really sorry and I I learned from this Um, and it's surprising the amount of people who are completely unable to do that Um, and you know what's wrong with that I mean you you know like because nobody is asking everyone to be perfect all the time no but you know we can say you got this wrong and if someone says you know what I've thought about it and I I got it wrong and that's fine and people can make mistakes Um, but yeah it's just interesting because we're in this sort of weird like era of like these older comics um, because I remember there was this video, this video that was going out online of Louis C.K., Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock, and Jerry uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And so Louis C.K. Um, and uh, Ricky Gervais are just throwing out the N word willy nilly, um, like the hard hard R N word. Mm. Um, and you're thinking Chris Rock's going to say something. You're thinking he might. He says nothing. <laughs> mm. And guess who's the person who's like saying, maybe guys, you probably shouldn't use that word. It's Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, wow. When I think about dying, I think about children. If you enjoy eating out, having diabetes needn't deprive you of this enjoyable experience. However, if you eat out regularly, you'll need to pay close attention to food choices and serving sizes. Try to choose meals that are lower in fat and particularly low in saturated fat. Choose menu items that contain breads, cereals, vegetables or fruits and which have a moderate amount of added sugar. If you're using insulin, be aware that your meal may be served later than usual. So take your insulin with you and do your injection as the meal arrives. And be sure to choose a meal with enough carbohydrates by asking for extra bread, rice, potato, fruit or fruit juice. This is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health and Ageing. Join us on the chat room with Carmelina and Vilma every Monday between 4 and 6 p.m. Tune in and find out the latest topics in your local community covering the Moreland and Hume areas. And you can also live stream us on northwestfm.org. Tune in then. Just a little bit. Northwest FM will broadcast the Essendon District Football League's final series every Saturday and Sunday through to the Premier Division Grand Final on Saturday, September 21st. All matches will be broadcast from 2pm to 5.30pm. To make way for the Sunday broadcasts, That's Country will be heard between 12 noon and 2pm. Darren's program, Your Health is Your Pension, and Nunzio's program, Deselection, will both take a three-week break, returning on Sunday, September 22nd. For more information, head to our website, northwestfm.org. Northwest FM, it's indeed the radio station. The show is uh, Mad Village on 98.9. And um, the the song you just heard before was Now You Know by Anais Mitchell. I find that song very, very moving. Now, um, we were were talking this morning to Ahmed Yusuf, um, who is a a local journalist. 
and um, you're just generally a very wise man, particularly given ah. his his age. Um, but uh, now I, I actually wanted to bring out bring up a topic myself, Ahmed. Um, yes. Something that I have been very worried about for a while, and this weekend on the conversation there was an article by um, a lady called Marilyn McMahon from Deakin, Deakin University. Uh, which says basically locking up legally innocent people before the trial is straining victorious prisons. And it's basically um, just talking about um, remand and how we're using remand in some ways as a, as a way to allegedly make the, make the community safer. But um, by doing that, we're actually putting a lot of train, strain on our system. And I guess... One of the things that happens is, as you know, we've had lots of horrible um, crimes lately that get a lot of media attention, and uh, one, one of them is the the, the mur- murder of Jill Maher, I think that was in two th- 2012 in Brunswick. Um, the, the person who murdered her was on bail, and the other person who was on bail uh, uh, when he committed a horrible crime was that guy called James Gargasulas who ended up killing quite a few people by running over them in the CBD. Um, and, you know, following that, there was a huge outcry, which led to the Victorian government coming up with some changes to to uh, sentencing, uh, which basically make... I guess the, the main thing that they do is they... They reduce the amount of uh, discretion that magistrates have in, in their sentencing. And basically, uh, following those changes, um, I think the person who's facing, you know, depending on, you know, when you commit a pretty serious crime, um, the onus, when you have been accused, the onus is on you to um, to prove why you should go on bail rather than be sent uh, be in prison. Now, what's really interesting, and what this lady is saying in the article, is that there seems to be some evidence that. Um, Going to prison, um, you know, being on remand, um, actually makes people more likely to commit crimes in the future. And we've known for a while that prisons are, uh, in some ways, like um, training warehouses for people to to learn how to commit crime. It's where people learn how to be uh, criminals. And also, it's like, the reality is that when you think about a prison, and you think about the idea of sort of uh, prison system is to quote-unquote rehabilitate offenders, how is it that someone is going to be rehabilitated in a cage? When you think about that sort of like, Mm. that very visual idea, um, and it was interesting, I was at a talk um, at the Writers Writers Festival that DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matter did, and it was really, really interesting. And uh, he he asked this question um, about how much... uh, how much how much is violent crime um uh, uh, how much what's the percentage of violent crime in america um how how much do you think that is how much do you think of all crime of all crime how much is violent crime i would say i don't know very low one percent but 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 i know a little bit about this happened (laughs) yeah i know but like your perception would have been like maybe 50 percent he's like it's five percent yeah so five percent of all crime in america uh, is f- uh, violent crime, and I can I can I can think and probably very similar that Australia violent crime is very very low. It would be even lower than that. Yeah. It'd be even lower, right? Mm. And so, 
the issue in this is the saying that there will be obviously outliers in this situation, but create we will only create more violent people in these spaces if we continue this line of um, remand and and taking people to prison. Yeah, so th- this is also I think something that people uh, I don't know how aware they are of this, but um, the basic equation is the equation is the following. Um, I mean, just a couple of years ago, um, it. The cost of sending someone to prison was around hundred thousand dollars. That cost has gone significantly higher, and um, I was looking for some figures. But um, I actually so the minister for justice came to visit at Banksia Gardens recently, and him, uh, the the minister himself, um, he used the figure of hundred seventy thousand dollars a year that it costs to keep someone in prison. Now um, that is a lot of money. You would think that for that amount of money you will have to get quite a lot of return on your investment. But on the other, you know, what happened instead is that 44% to 44 to, you know, between 40 and 50% of people who go to prison are back there within two years. Can you, can you imagine, right? Say there was a, a space, right? A different government spending space where you said that, let's say if it was... We'll say Sendlink, right? We'll say every single person on Sendlink got a hundred thousand um, dollars, just just by virtue of being on Sendlink, yeah. And say forty four percent of those people stayed on Sendlink dis- uh, despite the idea of them moving out, right? How much outcry would there be by people in in government uh, uh, commentators and 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 and, and etc. Right? That they were stuck in this ver- this vicious circle of government spending but it's never the same when it comes to prisons because of this like this fear that we attach to to quote-unquote violent crime when it is a such a small well, significant, insignificant yeah, you know absolutely. That's percentage the, that's the that's the main point that um again the i think the bail system you could say that it was working fine, and unfortunately, I mean, there's, there's al- always going to be uh, things that you can improve, and there's always going to be um, ext- extreme circumstances. But j- basically, we created some laws to fix something that wasn't necessarily broken. Yeah. And by doing that, we've made it worse, and now we've created so much, we've put so much pressure on the system. Well, but also, like usually, most of the time, crime is made in the um, poorest places in, our, in in this country, right? Mm. In our in, um, and and a lot of the time, it isn't because there are more or less police. It's because there are less resources, less resources, more homelessness, more poverty equals more crime. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely, and and I mean that's also I guess putting things together. Um, recently, the Victorian Sentencing Council uh, released a report called Crossover Kids, and basically they said, look. Um, they analyzed a whole bunch of um, cases of ch- of young people who were going getting c- custodial sentences, and they found that uh, a- an overwhelming majority of them um, had been uh, known to child protection, and their cases had been substantiated, which basically means that these children were victims of abuse themselves uh, and and of crime. And and again, so those are the people that we are ending up ending up sending to jail. Um, and of course, let's not forget as well about the crazy overrepresentation of indigenous people in in all of that cohort as well. So anyway, 
I guess the um, particularly in Northern Territory, yeah, where every single child and this everyone in this country should be sick by this statistic. Every single child in the Northern Territory, um, in youth detention, in juvenile detention, is Indigenous. Not any, just every single hundred percent. Mm. That is a disgusting number, and it's. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I uh, look. I we just wanted to talk about this because I think it's really important, and we we need to make some changes to this. Um, so there was that article on the conversation, and also there was another article by the former um, Attorney General of, of Victoria, Rob Hulse, um, and he published this article on the Herald Sun, and I think it was a really good article. Um, it it was related to this. Um, and it had to do as well with um, people who, um, you know, are aggressive towards paramedics and, and emergency services workers, um, because there's also a, an, a manda- mandatory sentencing element there. Um, and he was just talking about how he feels that um, magistrates have been losing their independence more and more, and that actually is a is a great issue because. The magistrate is the person who can ac- can actually look at the individual circumstances of this person and see what they can put in place to ensure that they keep keep the community safe. And we make o- when we make all of these laws that say as a blanket rule you have to do this, then we're actually removing that ability to actually treat the individual case. And uh, Rob Hulse was using the example of his. Um, of his brother who who actually passed away a, a, a few years ago but he had m- s- uh, serious mental health issues and um, and again you know he he talked about how quite often they had to call the cat team and quite often he would be very aggressive and violent um, but um, again there was the magistrates and everyone else was was able to to look into the individual circumstances and understand what was going on and anyway I think that's really really critical and we need to do something about this because soon we're going to have to be deciding whether we invest money in schools and hospitals or if we keep uh, building more prisons completely Hmm. Anyway, so that's that's uh, a bit of a depressing one for you, Ahmed. No, no, <laughs> it's a necessary conversation. Let's um let's play one more track and then we'll come back for just a couple of minutes. Ahmed, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, um, I did too. Her name is Charlotte Dos Charlotte Charlotte. <laughs> I don't know Dos Santos. She her tr- the, the track is called Red Clay. She's a Norwegian-raised, New York-based singer. There oh, you go. International. This is uh, the world these days have beca- yeah. has become so diverse. All right, so. Um, all we have time for today is to say goodbye and to announce the track that you have chosen yes. to play. So tell us about that. It is Sharon Venetton's We Are Fine. Um, I really enjoy Sharon Venetton. She's a lovely singer. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't get to see her when she came to Melbourne earlier this year. But hopefully you all enjoy her. And you know, I, need, I didn't know anything about her, Ahmed. So looking forward to listening to this. And uh, we will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>